good. That was totally my fault. I own that. I apologise. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. I actually got introduced, where's Mike, as Phil in Eaglehawk. So, um, a day for names. It's good. Um, I want to begin this morning uh, by getting us all to think of an experience that I reckon we all would have had at one stage in our life. Some of you might have, you might need to think back a little bit further than others, uh, but I want you to think back to that moment at the end of the year where you opened up your end of year school report. Try to harness the emotions that were going on in your body on that kind of opening of that school report. Do you remember that? We all did it, didn't we? There was, I remember for me, there was that kind of moment of feelings of kind of deep anxiety, but also, and fear, right? Did I, did I fail? Will, will there be an F? Like, did I do okay? Do I, will I actually be able to give this to my parents with any sense of okayness about my life ever again? But there was also that kind of sense of excitement, you know? Well, maybe I did do okay. Maybe I did did. Did do okay. Um, I, don't, I don't know how, how you went uh, for that moment. Um, I always remember that the end of year school reports, it wasn't just about the grades, it was also about the comments. Um, looking around, there's a few teachers in the room, aren't there? I, I've got a theory that maybe third and fourth year of studying education is just about learning how to write those comments uh, on your school report uh, because they're fascinating. There's kind of this, they come with like that, um, you know, encouragement, compliment, and then they just slam you with a bit of a, re a rebuke or a critique at the same time. Um, I, actually, I actually was back at my parents' house uh, um, this week for the school holidays, and um, I dug up some of my old school reports. And I thought I'd read you just a couple uh, of comments that I got. I won't tell you what year it was from, uh, but um, here's the first one. See if you can see just the the compliment and the rebuke at the same time. Uh, Steve contributes well to class discussion, but would benefit from learning some self-control. <laughs> Which in other words, what does that mean? He talks too much, can't shut him up. I actually had to move, uh, this isn't in my script, I actually had to move classes, English classes. A friend of mine, um, we got given an ultimatum either stop talking or we're going to separate you guys. And I got moved classes because we just could not stop talking all the time. Anyway, here's another one. Steve shows great enthusiasm, but needs to be encouraged to listen carefully to instructions. <laughs> I don't know if you ever got those types of comments, you know, on your reports. It's kind of the good bits, the compliment, the encouragement, and then there's that kind of sharp rebuke at the same time, which is really what they wanted to say all along, right? Um, well, today at church, uh, and over the next kind of seven weeks, here today, we're starting uh, this series called The Seven Words to the Church. Uh, for seven weeks, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapters two and three, uh, where we find these seven letters to seven first century churches uh, in Asia Minor. And what these letters really are is they're kind of like Jesus' report to the churches. They're Jesus' assessment to these first century churches about how they're going as being churches. 
Some are doing really well, uh, so they get the encouragement. Uh, some aren't doing very well, so they get the kind of rebuke, the critique. Uh, but most of them are actually a bit of a mixture of the two. They kind of get this encouragement and they get this rebuke from Jesus at the same time. If you've got a Bible, it would be great if you could move towards the back of the Bible and find Revelation. Or if you've got a device, it would be really helpful to open that up. But before we get to Revelation um, 2 this morning, I actually want us just to think briefly about Revelation chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 1 of Revelation, there is this incredible vision of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. As a description of who Jesus is right now as he's reigning and ruling in heaven. Uh, and, and in the second half of that chapter, um, there's all these kind of picture language or, or metaphor in order to try to communicate who Jesus is and what he's like. And I just want to pull out one verse, verse 16. So Revelation 1 verse 16. It uses this metaphor to communicate what Jesus is like. And it says this. It says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, you've got to remember this is picture language. Jesus isn't literally in heaven walking around with a sword protruding from his mouth. It's actually picture language or symbol language to teach us something, right? And what it means, what it indicates is that when Jesus speaks, he speaks incisively. When Jesus speaks, he speaks in a way that kind of cuts to the heart. His, his words aren't blunt, right? They're sharp. They're, they're kind, they can be divisive. It's sharp, it cuts to the heart. He rebukes us, he encourages us like a sharp two-edged sword. And here in these two chapters, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, what we're going to see over the next seven weeks is that Jesus speaks really sharply to these seven churches. Um, now, these words, uh, or, or these letters, um, in fact, the whole book of Revelation um, was given uh, as a vision uh, to the Apostle John. Uh, and it was given around the year AD 90. Uh, so AD 90, that's about 60 years after Jesus' kind of life, death, resurrection and ascension. So it's about 60 years after Jesus returned to heaven. Um, and Mike actually was speaking about being in Acts chapter 13. Um, in the book of Acts, Mike was talking about learning from the, the master church planter. Um, that was probably about 40 years prior. So around the, when, when that was happening, Paul's journeys were around AD 50 to AD 60. Um, and so what that means is that these letters come to the church about 40 years after they've been first planted. Uh, you'll see there uh, on the screen, um, there's, a, there's a map, there's a picture of the, the churches that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. Um, but you might remember, as, as Mike was indicating there, that Paul actually travelled around all this region. Uh, and when Paul travelled around, he took the gospel, he took the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and risen for our hope. That it's Jesus who brings us to God in right relationship with God. Paul was the one that took that message to those places for the very first time. And you might remember if you've read through that second half of the book of Acts, many, many people responded to that good news about Jesus. Many people responded and brand new churches, in fact, those seven churches were born around that time. Well, here we are now 
in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we're about 40 years after those churches were first planted. Um, so these letters, these messages that we're going to read, they actually come to churches that are reasonably well established. Uh, we can talk to Mike in 40 years' time, and we can ask him how his church in the city is going, and he'll probably say, yeah, it's got a bit more structure. Got a committee, got this, got that. You know, it's been established. You think about a church that might be 40 years old. They've been meeting now for several decades. And it seems to me that these um, letters uh, to the church uh, from Jesus, they actually really are designed to speak specifically, specific words to specific churches in those specific places. Um, they're letters that are directed to those particular churches. But at the same time, it also seems that these letters, though they were specific church letters to those specific churches, they were also designed to be read more widely. They're actually designed to be kind of spread around all the churches. Um, and you get a hint of that, in fact, that in every single letter to these churches, there's a repeated phrase. And it says this, it says, whoever has an ear, which I take as most of us, whoever has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Every time, churches is plural. So what that means, I take it, is that these letters were to be circulated. They were to go, yes, first to that church and correct and encourage and rebuke them. But then they were to be circulated to all the churches, to all of God's people. They were to be read much more widely. And so I take it what that means for us is that we today can read these seven letters and they become a little bit like an assessment guide or a report that we can read and we can think about, well, how are we doing as a church today? Um, they all have a fairly similar structure. I'll put this up on the screen. Um, they all begin with who the letter is to. So they're to a particular church. They're from Jesus. They all come with some form of commendation. Jesus says, I know you. I know what you're doing well. Here's what you're doing well. Then they come uh, with a complaint or a critique. He says, this is what I hold against you. Um, he then there's a, there's a call. There's an instruction. How will we respond to Jesus' words? And then they all end with a beautiful promise for those that do heed that call. Jesus gives a wonderful promise. And so over the next seven weeks here at our church, we're going to hear these seven letters. We'll hear the words of commendation uh, and where they are true of us, we'll be really encouraged by that. Uh, we'll hear words of complaint, of critique and where they're true of us. I take it we need to be warned and we need to learn from that. Uh, we'll hear the call to respond to Jesus' words with repentance and faith. And it's my prayer that each week we will leave holding on to this amazing promise that Jesus gives at the end of each one. Well, that's the intro. I hope that got you excited about the series. Um, I'm going to read uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus. It'll come up on the screen, but if you've got it in front of you, that'd be great too. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the letter. Uh, you see there, uh, the letter begins in verse 1. Uh, the angel of the church in Ephesus right. All the letters actually begin like this. It's really interesting. Uh, you can read lots of things. They all begin with this, um, to the angel. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever picked up um, some commentaries on, on a book of the Bible and started reading. You see that no one really agrees on much. When you come to the book of Revelation, there's a whole lot of things that no one agrees on. And here in our very first verse, no one really agrees on this. Um, to the angel, people say, well, is it a literal angel? Maybe. Does every church have its own guardian angel? That's what some say. Maybe. Um, in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, uh, the word angel and our word messenger are actually exactly the same word, angelos. Um, and so it could be that it's not actually an angel, it's actually the messenger. So to the person who's physically going to carry this message to the church, like just another person. Um, what does this mean? Who, who is it? Um, I don't know, um, so I'm going to move on. Um, well, what we do know um, is we actually do know a lot about the place or the church that this is being written to, the place of Ephesus. Um, this letter is being written to uh, the people, the church in Ephesus, and we know a lot about the church and also about the culture of the city of Ephesus. Uh, you might know Ephesus was a really big, influential city in the first century. Um, it was probably around 250,000 people, which was quite large, one of the largest cities of the day. Um, it was wealthy, it was a port town, it was influential, um, and it was also a really religious city. Uh, not a Christian city, but a religious city in that it worshipped a goddess uh, called Artemis. Um, in Acts chapter 19, uh, you can actually read, and I encourage you actually to read Acts chapter 19. It's a fascinating chapter in the Bible. I don't know when you're going to get up to it, Mike, in your readings, but um, Acts 19 is fantastic. Um, that was when the Apostle Paul first went to Ephesus. Uh, and, and, you, and you can read there, it says in Acts chapter 19 verse 1, that he went there and he reasoned with the people for two and a half years. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. It says there that he reasoned with them that Jesus really is the saviour. I take it that he reasoned with them that Jesus was the one to be worshipped above all else, to be worshipped as king. And you can read that as a result, many people in Ephesus actually became believers. They became followers of Jesus. They started worshipping Jesus instead of worshipping Artemis. 
Uh, they replaced their statues and their shrines that they used to use to worship Artemis with prayer and with fellowship with the gospel. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 19, um, you can read how at one stage, people becoming Christians started a riot in the town. Uh, the reason is, uh, not because of the Christians, but because there was a particular guy, his name was Demetrius, he was a silversmith, and that, I don't know how many silversmiths there are these days, but his trade was actually to make idols or shrines of this goddess Art Artemis, because that's how people worshipped. They would get their little idol and they would take it home and, and they would worship Artemis. And he was so upset that so many people were becoming Christian that he feared that his trade would go out of business because no one would need any more idols. And so in Acts chapter 29, uh, Acts 19 verse 29, it says this. It says, he started a riot, so much so that the whole city was shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul effectively got run out of town because people didn't want to give up their worship. I did a bit of reading this week. It's actually really fascinating. I might encourage you over the next seven weeks to do a bit of reading about the particular cities that these letters are written to. Um, it fascinated me to learn about the sheer size and scale of this worship to the goddess Artemis. Um, a picture is going to come up on the screen. Um, they reckon this is what the temple of Artemis might have looked like in its glory days. It's pretty impressive, don't you reckon? To build that in the first century. 137 metres long. 69 metres wide. 18 metres high. More than 127 columns. It's huge, isn't it? It's massive. I reckon it would almost rival the MCG with dimensions like that, wouldn't it? People just flock to it in order to worship whatever they find inside the ground. I'm a bit disappointed, actually. My team lost by one point. Um, so I've given up AFL worship. <laughs> Moved back to rugby league. Um, this was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The great temple to Artemis. Here's what it looks like now, today. I think Dave and Julie might be going to visit this. It's not that impressive, is it? Um, back in the day, it was glorious. But this false worship has all but disappeared. Uh, here's a picture of Artemis herself coming up on the screen, or the Lady of Ephesus, as some people called her. Um, she was known as a fertility goddess. She was worshipped for being something a little bit like Mother Nature in the way that she cared for all living things. She was kind of seen as the source of life, but also particularly she was seen as kind of the rescuer of wild things, wild animals. And you see that on the coin um, next to her. Apparently back in the day, coins were really, they were made and, and had inscriptions on them to try and speak about and show about the particular um, person that they worshipped, the king or the emperor or the goddess or whoever it was. Um, these inscriptions show us a little bit about what they believed about this goddess Artemis. Uh, there's a bee on the front of the coin. 
Um, apparently, she was known as the Queen Bee, uh, the one in charge. Um, people have found in the kind of ruins of ancient Ephesus that a lot of the architecture had a type of honeycomb structure to it in order to kind of show where she was having her reign. The, the priestesses who served in her temple were apparently known as the honeybees as they buzzed around and did their thing. But on the back, and I think, if we go back to that coin, sorry, if we go back to that coin, um, on the back, you actually see, I think, something really helpful, and a lot of scholars have picked up on this. Two things, there's a date palm on one side, and there's a wild deer or a wild stag. And they say that these are really important in terms of what they believed about Artemis. They believed that the, the date palm was a source of life. It was a little bit like the tree of life, the life-giving tree. Um, but then there's a deer next to it. And a lot of the scholars say that the, the, the tree and the deer next to each other kind of symbolise something really important for us today. And that is that like a wild animal might run to a tree for kind of refuge. That's what they believed about Artemis. That wild people, wild things could come and run to her and find refuge and safety under this great queen goddess. Uh, one scholar speaks about how Artemis's temple had actually become famous as a place of refuge and asylum for criminals who were fleeing from punishment that they could go there and that they could, they could find safety, freedom. Um, people who knew that they were done for in life would seek this place out, seek that God out. They would run to her, find refuge from the punishment that they deserved. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, I often think, um, we often think sometimes that mission is pretty hard to our city. How are we going to reach our city with the good news of Jesus? Um, well, I actually think we can learn some things from the Apostle Paul. We can, we can see what Paul might have done here. I take it that Paul went into this place in Ephesus. I take it that he looked around and he saw what they worshipped. He observed why they worshipped it. He saw that people were running to Artemis for a sense of safety, a sense of security, a sense of protection, someone to care for them. And I can imagine Paul going to Ephesus, seeing people with this deep desire for safety and security. And I imagine he might have said to them, do you want a true place of refuge? Do you want a, a true place of safety? Do you want protection, not just in this life, but in the life to come? then don't run to Artemis, run to Jesus. Can you imagine him saying something like that? Imagine him saying something like, do you want a safe place from the punishment that you deserve on the day of judgment? Don't run to Artemis, she can do nothing for you then. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus because he is the real tree of life. He is the real tree because on the tree on which he died, he did the one thing that no one else could ever do, and that is pay the debt that we owed. So run to him for refuge. Run to him for safety. He's defeated death and judgment for all.
who would run to him. That's what Paul might have said. See what he does? He picks up on what they worship. He sees why they worship it. And he shows why Jesus is so much better. And you can imagine the response, can't you? Where the culture said, great is Artemis. Believers were starting to say, no, no, no. Great is Jesus. We're going to live for Jesus. We're going to live for the God who loves us, the one who serves us, the one who died and rose for us. And that's what many, many people in Ephesus actually did. Many people, and we can read, actually stood against the culture of the day. They lived very different lives to everyone around them. And that's actually, I take it, what Jesus picks up in this letter that he writes to them. You see it in verse 2, right? It'll come up on the screen. He says, I know your deeds. I know your work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. Do you see, 40 years on, Jesus says to them, he says, I know you, I see you, I see how you've been living. I know that you've worked hard. I know that you've rejected that false teaching. I know that you've rejected wickedness. And I know that you've, you've not given in to that overwhelming push of the culture. You've not got caught up in that. And that's been hard, hasn't it? That's so good, Jesus says, that you've kept going with me. You've lived different lives in order to serve me, honour me, live for me. You've persevered, you've endured when it's been really tough. Jesus says to this church, I know what you've done. and It's great. Do you see that? He says it's really good. These are really good things. And friends, I just want to pause for a moment and say, Jesus really, really does love these things. He really does. When his people don't give in to the surrounding culture, that just puts a massive smile on his face. He sees it. When you don't get caught up in the, the crude joking, the lying, the cheating, the laziness in your workplace, he sees that. He sees it in the way that you use your money for him and not for whatever the world tells you just to spend it on yourself. He sees that. He sees it in all the ways that you try to be godly in your home, have an influence in your family, in your workplace, with your friends. He sees that. He sees the service that you do for your church. He sees the meals that you cook for people, the way you love he notices all those things. Those moments where, you know, you feel like, oh man, no one came up, no one said thanks. Jesus sees it. He knows and he's thankful. Do you believe that? It brings a smile to his face when he sees these things. These are really good things. So keep going, he says. He knows their hard work, right? He knows their perseverance. Maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years and you're like this. You've been working really hard. Jesus sees that perseverance and he loves it. He's really thankful. He commends their commitment 
And he also commends, do you see, their commitment not just to, to the hard work and the labour, but also to the, to the truth. Did you see that also in verse 2? I'll read it out. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them to be false. And then if you just jump down to verse 6, he also says, um, and you have this in your favour, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he says. Now again, we don't know exactly uh, what it was that the Nicolaitans taught. There's lots of kind of thought about this. Um, most likely, though, they were a group of people uh, that probably started out as followers of Jesus. But over the years, what's happened is that they've gone along with a whole lot of what the surrounding culture has been saying, particularly about sex and sexuality. And they've kind of compromised in areas like that. It's not that the Nicolaitans have kind of flat out denied Jesus' death and resurrection or anything like that. It's probably much more subtle. Um, it's probably something like on the level of compromise where people might say, yeah, no, it's kind of okay to just go with the flow with some of those things. And they've just kind of let that creep in. It's pretty relevant for us today, isn't it, when you think about that? It's kind of constant pressure to just go with the culture rather than the Bible on what is true. Particularly, I think, on issues of marriage, sex, of gender, roles of men and women, stuff like that. It's really tempting just to go with the culture rather than go with the Bible. And I'm sure the Ephesians felt the pressure of that. To worship the queen bee, the mother goddess, right? They would have felt the pressure of that. But here Jesus commends them. He says, well done for standing on the truth for not compromising with those worldly values and practices. Well done. Jesus has really positive things to say to this church, do you see? They work hard. They defend the truth. They do lots of things really, really well. But he does have one thing to say to them. And it's a very serious thing. Do you see it there in verse 4? Verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. What does this mean? You have forsaken the love that you had at first? Is it their love for Jesus? Is it their love for each other? Is it the love for the lost, for reaching the lost? Well, it could be all of those. But I lean towards it being their love for Jesus. Seems to me that um, this church had pretty much everything good, except the main thing. Little by little, uh, it seems to me that this church had got so caught up in not being like the culture, so caught up in not being like the false teachers, not being immoral. You know, so caught up in not being like that and instead being focused on, you know, kind of being good, being a good, hardworking, truthful Christian person. So focused on those things that they actually lost their love for Jesus. Their love for Jesus has been forsaken and it's been replaced by a love to live 
a certain way. Their first love for Jesus has gone. If you've ever been in love, then you probably know what first love is. Remember that? Some people might call it honeymoon love. I, um, I married a couple a few weeks ago uh, and they've been on their honeymoon posting photos all over Facebook just of each other. No one else gets, gets a look in, right? It's obnoxious. No. It's beautiful, actually. First love, honeymoon love. It's a kind of love where you just always want to be with the other person. It's the kind of love where you do whatever it takes to make the other person smile. It's the kind of love where you'd even sacrifice your own self in order to do things for them. And it won't even feel like sacrifice. It'll feel like joy. Because you just love them. And you'd do anything for them. It's the kind of love where you just want to be with them all the time. Talk to them. Share life with them. You're on a high that you never want to come down from. If there's ever an issue in your life, they're the one you, that you run to. But sometimes, maybe oftentimes, as you come back from the honeymoon, the honeymoon love starts to wane a little bit, doesn't it? Married friends out there. As the honeymoon shifts to marriage, sometimes other things can come in. Just life happens, right? And romance can turn into routine. Passion kind of turns to protocol. And a desire to just, you know, the desire to please the other person just becomes sometimes a desire to just coexist. Imagine for a moment uh, if I said to Laura, my wife, Laura... I don't love you anymore. Don't worry. Nothing's going to change. I'll still go out and try and make a living. I'll still parent the kids. I'll, you know, we'll still share a bed. I'll do all the things, right? I just don't love you anymore. Imagine if I said that. To abandon our first love is to say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't love you anymore. But I'll still work hard. I'll still come to church, I'll sing, I'll pray, I'll give, I'll serve, I'll do all the things, don't worry, I'll defend the truth, I won't compromise on culture, I just don't love you anymore. That's what's happened to this church in Ephesus. Their devotion to Christ has turned into a devotion for running church services. It's turned into getting the Bible right, to not being like the culture around them. It's turned into a religion that is very much like the religion that Jesus faced in his day, the day of the Pharisees. It's all about rules. It's all about appearing good. It's all about morality. And you know, sometimes, in fact, I've been asking myself this week, is that me? Honest question, is that me? When I think about my faith, my walk with Jesus... How's it going? I mean, I'm someone that likes to get the Bible right. I'm someone that likes to be a particular type of person, appear to be a particular type of good Christian, right? 
Am I just turning up? Am I just doing those things because I'm actually more worried about what other people, you guys, might say to me or think of me if I don't do it? Rather than my devotion to Jesus. Has my love for Jesus turned into some sort of formal religiosity? It's a pretty serious question to ask, don't you reckon? And to answer it, here's a question that I reckon might help. When something happens in my life, who do I run to? Who do I run to? Because we always run to the one that we love most, don't we? When something great happens, we run in order to share that great news with them. When we feel scared, we, we run in order to find safety with whoever we think can give it to us. When we're upset or anxious, we run to whoever we think might comfort us. So who do you run to? Do you run to Jesus? Perhaps another way to ask that question is, how's my prayer life at the moment? Because the reality is, if we never talk to someone, it says something about the relationship, doesn't it? It says something about our love for them. Or in fact, if I only ever talk to someone because I want something from them, rather than just because I want to be with them, then that says something about the relationship. It actually says that I just want the stuff that they're going to give me more than them themselves. Jesus comes to this church and he says, Church, do you love me? Will you love me again? In verse 5, you see there, he says, Repent. Turn back to me if this is you and do the things you used to do. Do you see that verse 5? He says, repent and do the things you did at first. It's a little bit like he's saying, let's go back to the honeymoon. Let's go back there. Do you remember that time? Do you remember when you first trusted me, Jesus says? Do you remember that joy, the passion you had? Remember how you just loved to pray because you wanted to share your life with me? Remember how you used to read the Bible because you just wanted to get to know me more and learn and grow? Remember how you were so moved as you used to sing and hear truth? Remember how you would just have moments whereas you remembered my love? You were just so overwhelmed with gratitude. Do you remember? It's a little bit like going back to the photo album of when they were first dating. And saying, remember that? Remember that? Wasn't that a great time? That's what we did at first. Do you remember, Jesus says, do you remember my love? Do you remember how I went to that tree, he says, and my arms were wide open to show you my love? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you first heard those words of grace and forgiveness and it just overwhelmed you? Remember that again. Remember my love, Jesus says. Look there again. Because my love Never changes, Jesus says. If you've stopped loving me, he says, I've never stopped loving you. So come back to me. Jesus comes to us today and he says, if we've lost our love, there's only one way back. It's the way we started. It's to run to him. It's to see again his love demonstrated at the cross. It's to hear those words of grace and forgiveness. Remember my love, Jesus says. 
And you will do the things that you did at first. And then he gives this amazing promise in verse 7. It says, to the one who does this, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a wonderful promise, hey? That as we return to Jesus, as we renew our love for him, we can be with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, praise you for your words to us. We thank you that um, you are so honest. You encourage us in the ways that we're doing well. And you rebuke us in the areas where we need to change. Father, please help us to respond to your love. Please help us to see how much you love us at the cross. And Father, by your spirit, please renew our hearts, renew our love such that we want to be with you, share life with you, do life with you, live for you, love you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Why don't we all